Hello, and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is Series 5, Episode 21, by Half a Meter. The main mover of our story this episode, the turning point, isn't a king, or a monk, or a sage, or even a minister. Now, the key person for us actually isn't a person from history at all. I'm not even sure he's older than me. It's a young man called Jagadish. And he's... Actually, no, I'm not going to spoil it for you. Let's just get stuck in. Ready? Let's go. We're in the imperial city, Kanyakubja, and it's now coming up to around 900 AD. The city is in the hands of the Pratihara Empire, the kings from the east, but now they've taken the imperial city and they've made it their capital, and it's become this bustling, cosmopolitan sort of place. The people there, it's said that they appreciate fine culture, they like good poems, they like good plays. In fact, one author compliments them really heavily. He says that the women of the city are known everywhere for their beautiful speech and ornamentation and everyone wants to copy them, which is a rather odd sort of compliment for a city, I suppose. In fact, let's go to a play in the city, one written by the author who made that funny remark. His name is Rajashekara. Now, Rajashekara, he was famous. In fact, he's still a little bit famous today in a sort of mentioned in the history textbooks, second page of Google sort of way. But back then, he was a really big deal. And part of the reason he was famous was because of his plays. He wrote quite a few of them, at least six, uh, probably more. And for the most part, there were these grand classical plays, proper drama, following the conventions for the most part, but playful. Playing around in particular with with language, inventing new words. There's a sort of light touch to his style, which endeared him to the folk of the fine taste at the Imperial City. One of his plays, I think it might have been his first one, was performed to the assembly there. So a pretty formal, official place. And these poems, they went down very well. He was in everyone's list of the best authors of all time. Sometimes this was done not as a kind of top ten authors, but a sort of list of authors who who learned from one another, sort of intellectual descendants. And if you're in that list, if you're in that lineage, then you're one of the best authors. And he himself had such a lineage, and he included himself in the same family as authors like Valmiki. Valmiki wrote the, the now standard version of the Ramayana, the great epic. He included himself in the same family as Bhavubhati, who we've met before. Other people compared him to my favourite Sanskrit author of all, Bana. But there was another reason that Rajashekara was famous. Not just his poetry, but because he was the emperor's guru, the emperor's teacher. And that's a pretty powerful position to be in. So, we're going to see one of Rajashekara's plays. It's actually a slightly peculiar play for him. It's not like the classical dramas that he's written that might be performed at the assembly. Instead, it's really 
It's a bit of pop culture. It's a sort of play that was called a satuka. A satuka might be、uh, nothing more than a sort of distortion of a South Indian word meaning actor. An actor, of course, is a scandalously popular profession at this time. Right, too exciting, too much on the road to be respectable. So this is a slightly dodgy, slightly shabby form of art, maybe. It's a style of play that's really for the common folk. Really, the snobs might say, for people with shorter attention spans. In a classical play, you usually have a long introductory sequence, which sort of sets the scene and starts developing the themes. But in this style of play, all of that long introduction stuff that that's shortened dramatically or cut out entirely. In a classical play, your aim really is to try and get the audience to. Experience a rasa, one of these these mood, these ascetic moods, and there are a range of different rasas. The number of rasas change over the years as drama develops, but they're complex, they're multifaceted. But in this style of play, this this sort of、uh, popular play, it's actually very limited. There's only really two moods that you're going for: tenderness and comedy. So this is more like a soap opera than like Shakespeare. Actually, that's quite a bad analogy, I suppose, because Shakespeare and Roger Shekera—they're basically aiming at the same sort of audience, right? The popular crowd in a cosmopolitan, sophisticated capital city. But you—you you get the point. Roger Shekera in this play wasn't going highbrow. This sort of play actually was so low it wasn't even listed on the types of drama in some of the lists. Just too common to be considered. And the most obvious marker of how common this play was was the language. The rest of Roger Shekera's plays were in Sanskrit. Sanskrit, the classical language for classical drama. But this play, this was in Prakrit, the everyday language for everyday folk. The play itself starts with a, a sort of blustery apology for this fact. So at the beginning of the play, before any of the actors are, are coming out, the stage manager comes on. With his assistant and talks to him, and it's all staged, of course. I mean, but both literally and and, and like, literally, I mean, the stage manager's words on stage are scripted. It's a a common device which lets the author tell the audience about the play they're about to see. And through the stage manager, the author tells us that he's used Prakrit because Prakrit is tender like a woman, while Sanskrit is harsh like a man. That same slightly odd sensibility used to describe the woman of the city is coming out again here. I think. So what on earth is going on? Raja Shekera, the the guru to the emperor, the guy who puts on the finest classical dramas. What's he doing here? Dabbling in pop culture. It's like Yo Yo Ma is starring in a Marvel movie. It's just weird. Well, the stage manager in the play gives us a hint at an answer. He says the play was requested by Raja Shekera's wife. She's got a connection with some of the people and some of the the places in the play. So this play is really a labour of love for our author, and that's rather charming.
so much for the master, what about the student, the emperor himself? He's a guy called Mahendrapala. Mahendrapala means something like protected by the great god Indra. Or maybe a bit more of a stretch, protected by the star of the east or protected by the east, something like that. Mahendrapala, by the way, no relation to the Palas, the dynasty of kings founded out in the east, the traditional enemies of Mahendrapala and his family. Mahendrapala is a Pratihara king, an emperor of the west. I guess that Pala is actually just a, a pretty common name. Not just the Palas have it. You, you find lots of kings with names that end in Pala who have nothing to do with the Pala kings of the east. Mahendrapala had inherited his throne from his father, Poja. He's the guy we spent most of the last three episodes with. And Boja was a huge figure, a magnetic personality, right? with an incredible perseverance, and by the end of his life, immense success. He was the guy who basically established the Pratihara Empire. Before that, it would come to the very edge of being an empire, but it just wasn't quite there. But in his reign, he beat back the traditional enemies of the dynasty, the, the Palas, and became the supreme ruler of North India, with no serious challenges up there. And that must have been... A pretty daunting act to follow. I mean, imagine you're Mahendrapala and you've just inherited the throne. Think of all of the men who followed founding emperors in the past. Men Mahendra would have likely known about. Men who had been in this very city before him trying to take over from a famous father and failing completely. Harsha was emperor in this city. His successors never even managed to inherit the empire. It had disintegrated before they could take power. Yashovarman, he was emperor in this city. His son did take power, but he was a, a former playboy who lost the imperial city and became a religious recluse. He utterly fumbled it. And I'm sure Mahendrapala could have listed dozens more examples of people who had inherited from a great conquering emperor and failed. It's not easy being the follow-up act to a great emperor. I suppose that if you manage to inherit the territories from your father intact, a major goal would be to keep the territories. Maybe you should even try to expand them, keep some of the momentum going from the empire's founding, and show that you're not just living off your father's glory, that you can fight yourself. And Mahendrapala, well, he actually did okay on that front. He inherited the land intact. He seems to have either gained ground or, or secured his hold on Saurashtra. That's the bit that pokes out into the sea in the west of India. There are some rumours that he lost territory in the northwest. We'll come back to that in a later episode, maybe. But according to Wikipedia, at least, Mahendrapala more than made up for any losses with large conquests in the east of India, into Magda the land around our city, Patliputra, and even further down the Ganga towards the sea into Bengal. And if this is right, Mahendrapala's conquests in the east would be really significant because Bengal is the homeland of the Palas, the lifelong rivals of the emperor. I mean, more than lifelong rivals, several lives. They'd been enemies for generations by now. If Mahendrapala had conquered all the way into Bengal, then he must have pretty much dethroned the old enemy. And, we are told by Wikipedia and a bunch of historians too, 
that the parlour king of the time indeed lost all of their power for a bit, went into hiding and only came out to re-establish his throne when Mahendrapala had died. So on this view, Mahendrapala is picking up where his father left off. Impressive. And there's more than enough evidence to back up this view. There have been inscriptions found in Magda and even into Bengal, I think there are nine of them, referring to Emperor Mahendrapala as the ruler. And then there's Mahendrapala's own teacher, the author of the play that we, we just went to see. The play, by the way, is about a, a king and a young lady he likes. Fairly typical starting place for a plot, back then anyway. And that's fine because it's, it's a bit of pop culture. Although, if I'm honest, I'm not too fond myself of this plot line because you've got the king and there's always a queen he's got and this new woman comes into play and the queen gets jealous and you're supposed to kind of side with the king and his new young love. But I can never quite get myself to feel that the queen isn't being pretty badly treated, which I suppose is a limitation of my imagination. Anyway, the hero of this play is the king. And although... He's not called Mahendrapala. Presumably the, the author of the play wrote it with his student in mind, with, with the emperor in mind. I mean, he could hardly do anything else, could he? Not so long as he was the close confidant of the emperor, living in the emperor's city, enjoying his patronage. No, the hero of the story must be modelled after the real emperor, Mahendrapala. And that suspicion checks out, because sure enough, right at the start of the play... When the king and the queen are being introduced, there's this passage all about the king's conquest of the east of India. Well, not all about it, because it's one of those fantastic pun trains that you find so much in older Indian literature. Here, the author is trying to talk about the king's military conquest in East India, whilst also talking about how darn sexy he is, which admittedly is a rather hard thing to pull off, right? martial and sexy at the same time, but I think the author does a rather good job. It starts like this. Victory to thee, O king, the lover of the lady of the east, the flower like the ear ornament of the city of Champa. The, the flower here is a particular flower called the Champaka flower, which is something that women often wear at that time in their hair or behind their ears. And Champa is a city in Magda, a bit downstream of our city, Patliputra. So Champa, Champaka, you get the point. It carries on. Whose luster transcends the loveliness of Radha. Luster is our translation of the word Radha, so he's saying your Radha has transcended Radha. And Radha is uh, also the name of a district in West Bengal. So the verse is simultaneously saying that the king is beautiful and also that he's overcome West Bengal. It goes on. Who has conquered Kamarupa by his prowess. Kamarupa is both a name for a Sam and also it means uh, the form of Kama, the form of the god of love. Dallying with Harikeli. Harikeli again is a pun and it means both merrymaking and also Bengal. So you get the idea. I mean, it loses quite a lot in the translation because you have to explain the puns. But at the same time, it's talking about the king conquering this part and that part and the other part of, of, of eastern India whilst saying that he's very beautiful in one and the same sentence. It's pretty clever stuff, I think. I mean, if I were to try and 
work out how to say simultaneously that someone's beautiful and good at fighting, I don't even know where I'd start. And it makes the point pretty clearly that the hero, who surely has to be a representative of the emperor himself, conquered East India. So there you have it. The inscriptions agree. The play written by the king's own teacher agrees. Plenty of historians agreed. Even Wikipedia agrees. Mahendrapala conquered most of East India. Only no. No, that's not what happened at all. But to find out what went wrong, we need to come forward in time, almost to the modern day. It's Friday, March the 13th, 1987. In the capital of America, Ronald Reagan is working his way up to tearing down that wall. In the capital of India, Rajiv Gandhi's doing, well, he's doing his thing, much more of which in a much later season. Meanwhile, on the top of a, an unusual mound in West Bengal, right next to Bangladesh, a young man called Jagadish is out the back of the house, digging a foundation for a new wall. Jagadish's father had fled Bangladesh and had arrived here just over the border in the modern state of India. And he had built a hut on top of this strange mound. Sort of highland it was called, but, but not too big a thing. His father's name, by the way, was Mahendra, which is a really enchanting coincidence given everything that followed. Jagadish started to dig down into the soil to carve out the space for this foundation. And when he'd reached maybe half a metre down, he hit something hard. He dug around a bit more and he found the edges of the thing. And it turned out to be this, this rectangle of copper, not that much wider than a sheet of A4 paper, but, but longer, stretching down 50 centimetres. And at the top of it, this big bulbous lump of something or other. Jagadish passed it on to an official. The official passed it on to another official. And within four months, it was in the custody of a museum. But a historian had already published a paper about it because he'd recognised something in that lump at the top of the copper page. Something familiar. He knew it was a circular seal. Around the edge of it was some decoration, but in the centre was the action. On the top half of the centre of the seal was a wheel of law, the classic Buddhist symbol, flanked on both sides by deer with a, an umbrella on top of it. And beneath that, in the second, the bottom half of the seal, was a name. One that could barely be made out beneath the rust, but could still be read. The images at the top of the seal were familiar to the historian. They'd been found in all sorts of Pala Empire documents. The Buddhist imagery marking the dedication of the emperors to Buddha. The name at the bottom of the seal, though, was not familiar. Not altogether unheard of, but a surprise. The name was Mahendrapala. The historian published his finding. 
Other historians were incredulous, as is their want. The only Mahendrapala around this time was the Pratihara Emperor, the Emperor of the West. He wouldn't be issuing a Pala Empire seal on his documents. It must be a mistake or a forgery. But as the copper plate was cleaned, as acid was used to gently wash away the years of corrosion, the letters were revealed beneath. And they weren't Devnagri letters, though they kind of look like it at a glance. If you look closely, this is a proto-Bengali script. This is the sort of script the Palas used. And the message, which was written in Sanskrit, that was the clincher. It told the story of the Pala emperors, from the founder all the way through to the fourth emperor, Mahendra Pala son of the great emperor Devapala, grandson of the great emperor Dharmapala. The historians, one by one, became persuaded. The most senior of them held out until they saw a, a copy of the inscription and translated it for themselves, but finally they too admitted that we had been wrong all along. And then there came more discoveries. So the inscription said that the emperor had built a Buddhist monastery, just like his forefathers had. In Bengal, in the Pala heartland, the emperors had building, building this network of huge monasteries. And the inscription marked the emperor's gift to the monastery, giving an entire town just to make sure it was sustained, to support the monks with their clothing and their medicine and their incense and everything they needed to worship Buddha and the goddesses. So historians and archaeologists started to try to work out where this monastery was, and it wasn't long before it appeared. There was a farmer who lived near Jagadish, up on that, that same peculiar mound, I think his name was Satish or something. One day he was ploughing his field when his, his, his plough hit on something hard, and with a bit of digging around they uncovered a huge black stone image of the Buddha. And after that, more finds started to come to light. Terracotta images, statues of Buddha, and more. And after a while, archaeologists arrived to confirm it. These guys, they hadn't been living on any natural mound. They'd been living on, on earth and silt heaped up over the monastery. The mound was the monastery. Its identification was confirmed because they found many seals that the Pala monasteries all used these seals, which had basically the same design, more or less, but just a different name at the bottom. It was the, a sort of sign that this was one institution connecting all the monasteries together. Well, they found these seals in this mound, and the name of the monastery, Nanda Adagiri Vihari, the same name as the monastery in the inscription. So it was all confirmed. The monastery is much like the other Pala monasteries that we've been in this season. A square courtyard with, with cells coming off it. In this case, there are eight cells on all, all sides, north, south, east and west. And there are bigger rooms at the corner. In the east and the west, there, there are staircases. Presumably, the upper floors were wooden and have just disappeared. The whole thing is cased in huge brick blocks in a style which has been called a fort monastery. 
Actually, some of the objects found there do have a, a sort of strangely martial style to them. There are these terracotta images, huge numbers of them. 487 have been found, and they once encircled all the way around the outer wall of the monastery. And they depict plenty of things. There's plenty of, of gods there, Buddha, Shiva, and, and other gods and goddesses. There are also worshippers and animals, but there are also quite a few soldiers there, with swords and spears and daggers, hunting with a bow and arrow, crouched low or, or standing up and firing, soldiers carrying sacred objects into battle. And the monastery is now fully excavated and you can go and visit it and, and see for yourself. I'll get there one day soon, I hope. What happened to, to Jagdish and his family and his neighbours, I've not been able to find out. Now, the whole story of Mahendrapala was overturned, parts scattered onto the floor of history. But what about those inscriptions? Those nine inscriptions in Bihar in Magda and in Bengal, which were supposed to mark Mahendrapala's invasion of those territories? Well, historians went back and took a closer look. They noticed that the letters on these inscriptions were actually more like the letters of the Palas, letters of the Eastern Mahendrapala's inscription, than anything like the Mahendrapala of the West. And anyway, these inscriptions were pretty small things, like carved into pedestals of something bigger. They were normally notes that such and such had been donated and not much more. None of them had the space to put in a history of the emperor's family. They just weren't that sort of document. In fact, not a single one of the inscriptions identified this Mahendrapala's dynasty or named any of his forefathers. We just assumed that there could only be one Mahendrapala and it had to be the Pratihara king, the king of the West. And, well, what they say about assumptions, that's what happened to us. So Mahendrapala, the Pratihara emperor of the West, he didn't expand, he didn't push downriver, he didn't invade Magda and then into Bengal. The inscriptions, which seem to show he did, were about another man called Mahendrapala, Mahendrapala of the East. The story that his poet wrote of a king invading the East, well, that was just a story. Maybe it was based on Mahendrapala's son, who also became the poet's student. The historians, and even Wikipedia, had been wrong. By the way, not to bash Wikipedia at all. It's been right when I've been wrong before in the past, and I'm pretty sure it will be corrected by the time this reaches your ears. And anyway, Wikipedia is wonderful for crusty old academics like me. Rather shockingly, I only have to publish something in some sort of peer-reviewed journal for it to count as a decent source on Wikipedia, or so I hear. So, good news for academics. But anyway, back to early medieval India. The two Mahendrapalas are actually remarkably similar. I mean, sure, they come from rival dynasties, the Palas in the East, the Pratiharas in the West, but their lives kind of mirror one another. The Pala Empire Mahendrapala, the Mahendrapala of the East, he ruled a couple of decades earlier than the Pratihara Emperor one of the West. But they both inherited the empire from their father. And in both cases, that was daunting because their father was a remarkable man who either established the empire or expanded it and secured it. 
And in both cases, their father ruled for an awfully long time. And in both cases, they ruled for much less of a time. They ruled for between 15 and 16 years each, probably. Both Mahendrapalas just about preserved the lands that their father had handed down to them. Neither did much to expand it, it seems. The impression that they did just comes from confusing the two men. And there's one other thing that the two Mahendrapalas share, one quirk in their futures. Mahendrapala of the East, the Pala Emperor, after his 15-16 years of rule were up, the empire passed not to his son but to his brother. It's actually in this case his full brother, which is fairly rare, same father and mother. Some historians guess that it was a coup because the brother mentions Mahendrapala in an early inscription, but after that, in later inscription, just doesn't mention him at all. His brother ruled for a while, not long enough for it really to make us worth making a point about his name, and then the whole kingdom was taken over by a cousin, the son of their father's first cousin, I think. And after that, the two brothers, Mahendrapala and his brother, they just don't get a mention in any other Pala document we have from any of their descendants. Why is that? Why was Mahendrapala and his brother washed away from history? Well, one historian guesses that this is because of their mother. She was from an old enemy, a a tributary king, which had once served the Pratiharas, the the traditional enemies. But then this tributary kingdom had switched sides when the Pala dynasty had become the supreme rulers of North India. And the result of that switching was they married their daughter to the new supreme Pala emperor, the two boys' mother marrying the father. Maybe, the historian postulates, the tributary kingdom switched sides again when the parlor's fortune started retreating. An old enemy turned friend and then turned enemy again. In which case, the two emperors are now the offspring of a traitorous kingdom, best forgotten. To be honest though, I expect that they were just not mentioned because it generally wasn't the dumb thing in India at this time. In inscriptions, Kings which weren't direct uh, ancestors of the king writing the inscription generally don't get a mention. You know, maybe there's some rare exceptions like Devapala who are simply too important to admit. But if you can cut someone out who's not in your direct line, in general, that's what you do. And what about Mahendrapala of the West, the Pratihara emperor? Well, he passed his empire not onto his brother, but onto his son. But after that... The inheritance of the empire had some of the same twists and turns. But that's a story for the next episode. Every week we read something from the original sources. This week, well, we've got two Mahendrapalas, so we're going to have two readings. First, a reading about the Mahendrapala of the East, the inscription. You just have to read it through once and you see how this couldn't possibly be the work of a Pratihara emperor. It's not so much that it starts with a dedication of Buddha, although it does start with a dedication of Buddha. Remember that the Palas, but not the Pratiharas, were Buddhists. 
even though the Pratiharas weren't Buddhists, they might well donate things to Buddha. After all, that's what historians used to make of those nine inscriptions they attributed to, to Mahendra Pala of the Pratiharas. See, a Pratihara emperor might even start an inscription with a dedication to Buddha. It's not out of the question. But the rest of the document... Well, for one thing, when you read this document, it's hard to resist the idea that it's obviously written by a Bengali. Right? In particular, all the vs are replaced with buzz. And that's just like the modern Bengali accent, where um, names like Vijay are pronounced as Bijay. But anyway, the, the details make it absolutely clear. So the inscription goes like this. Auspiciousness hail. May the illustrious Siddhartha, whose injunctions are obeyed by all, who, by virtue of his spiritual power, is seated on the exalted throne, who is valorous, who is delighted by wealth, happiness and prosperity, who is fond of granting great boons, who is born in the lustrous race, who acts for the welfare of his subjects, who is the sole emperor of the entire earth, who is also known as Sagata, and who is the upholder of righteousness, may he protect us. There was born a king by name Gopala, who, like the sun, destroyed all darknesses, like blemishes, and whose body is resplendent. On seeing him endowed with several gem-like qualities, the goddess of wealth offered oblations of water to the comfort she accrued from her stay in the abode of Hari. His son was Dharmapala, who attained fame in conquering many an arrogant king. His fame, like that of Indra, purified the faces of the directions defiled by the wicked Kali. He defeated the otherwise invincible sovereigns like Indra Raja. In a trice, he pounded the king of the Sindhu country in battle and handed over the sovereignty of the king of Mahodaya to the suppliant king Chakrayuja, like the famous demon king Bali, who without showing any trace of dishonesty gave the entire earth to Vamana, the incarnation of Lord Vishnu. The dust in the quadrangle of Dharmapala's palace is blown off by the breath of dying queens of the enemy kings. Ouch. The rut flowing from the temples of mad elephants is sprinkling the quadrangle. The jewels adorning the crown of the vassal kings who come down to pay respects to him look like flowers at his feet. In his robust hand rests goddess Lakshmi, brought there by the might of his hand. He begot by his wife Vikrama, the abode of morality, a son called Devapala who out of sheer curiosity showed his prowess like a child's play in the quadrangle of his house. He, this is Devapala now, the third emperor, he, during his punitive expeditions, brought his booty gold from various kings, and he was indeed the stage director in the drama that was enacted, the Great War. He built two temples respectively for Sugata and Gauri, by which their beauty looked like the forehead mark on the face of the entire world. And the day would dawn with the sound of his fast thrusting of impenetrable arrows, and it looked as if it made the sun god stand in the great mandapa of the war as witness. He made his sword get wet with the blood oozing out of the pot-like heads of the elephants of enemy forces. He collected taxes from the kings of the Hillian kingdoms. Skip a bit. He married Mahata, who was like the three Vedas, and who was the chaste daughter of Dolaba, 
who was verily the moon in the ocean of the race of the Chamanas. She was beautiful and interested in following the path of righteousness. And like Devaki, she gave birth to a son by name Mahendra Pala, to whom several kings offered obeisance, who easily bore the burden of governing the earth, and who was like the god Vishnu, whom the goddess Lakshmi on her own accord chose as her husband. The dust raised during the victorious marches of his army in various directions became denser and thicker and enveloped the entire sky, creating an impression of making the earth appear like a tree. I don't get this metaphor at all. Maybe it's some pun I don't see. After this, the inscription goes to specify the town that he's talking about, the town that he's donating, and he he's going to give it by his personal command, the emperor, to the Buddhist monastery. For the increase in merit of self, parents, and all living beings, I caused the construction of a vihara in the town of Nandagirika, already referred to above. For the proper worship anointment, and for the repairs to the vihara, the abode of all the leading virtues like the Prajnaparamitas, and for clothing, food, bed seats, medical treatment, and meditation of the venerable group of monks, the group of bodhisattvas, and the eight great holy personages, as well as any others of my choice to be allotted their respective shares in the manner which I've enumerated. I gave, as if directed by myself, the town mentioned earlier, along with the lands defined by its four boundaries. Skip, skip ahead a bit. Then we get this really curious and interesting end to the inscription which isn't about the emperor at all but is about other people in his empire it talks about two messengers of the king now it's common enough to have the messengers bring the message particularly of a donation and they're marked somewhere in the inscription but this is unique from this period in having two different messengers one is going to go and tell the officials and the other is going to go and tell the people it seems we hear a lot about them That's nice, because we rarely hear about these guys. While the bright star in battles was engaged in this pious act, Shurapala, he's one of the messengers, who is like Lakshmana to Sri Rama, and who was fond of doing pious deeds, was the royal messenger. In an illustrious family was born a person by name Devaradeva, who possessed praiseworthy character, and whose fame was sung across the country. Such were his sterling qualities that even now good people speak high of him. He was truthful and ready to sacrifice anything. At the same time, he was chivalrous. Thus, these three qualities, though mutually contradictory, found an ideal abode in him which could not be comprehended by anybody. His son was Narayanya, who was always residing with the goddess of wealth, who was fond of doing pious acts, who was truthful even at the cost of his life, and who was great in physical strength and stature. His spotless fame, like the clear crystal white pure water of the gushing waterfalls, starts whitening the faces of the directions, which had been reddened by the blood that had oozed from the mighty elephants which had been put to the sword in battle. He, of a selfless and contented disposition, was equally valorous and could destroy all foes. It is true that his intellect, bright like the firmament, had obtained true knowledge. He was great in munificence, and by a look in his eye he would give away gifts. His sun-like fame cast a shadow over the forest of blue lotuses in the lakes of directions. His spouse was Kalyanavati, who was like the goddess Lakshmi, who appeared like the three supernatural powers having taken a mortal form, and who was like a forehead mark on the material form of the three worlds. It goes on a bit in this sort of mode. 
something charming about these sort of non-emperor virtues. Maybe the people weren't really like this, but at least we find out what people wanted them to be like. Anyway, enough of that. Glorious stuff. It's available free on the internet. Please do get a read uh, if you have a time. It's a fantastic inscription. But we're going to finish just briefly with a quick look at the play that we started with, the one that was written by the Western Mahendrapala's teacher. In fact, we're going to pick up with that play almost exactly where we left off. So the king and the queen have just been introduced. It's the very beginning of the play. After that, there's this lovely chat about how the weather's getting warmer, which is nice. Um, but we're going to skip over that and we're going to uh, come when the jester appears on the scene. Time for some slightly silly entertainment. And it goes like this. Jester. Hi there. Among you all, I'm the only one that's a bit of a scholar. For my father-in-law's father-in-law used to lug around books at another man's house. Then an attendant speaks, a female attendant. <laughs> Got your learning by direct inheritance then, didn't you? Jester. Ha! You slave girl's child. Who'll be a board in your next birth, you small fractioner? Am I such a fool as to be laughed at even by you? And besides, oh, you polluter of other men's sons, you light of love, you terror of the gambling hells, hand and glove with ruined folk, what have you got to say against my inheriting my learning? Please take notice that they who are born in my family do get their learning by inheritance. There's no use in talking, bangle on your wrists, no need of a mirror. Attendant. Right you are. Nor of asking the bystanders if a horse is speeding when you see him on the dead run. Come now, give us a description of spring. Jester. How do you come to be standing there chattering like a cage darling? You don't know anything. So I'll give my recitation before my old man and the queen. For musk isn't sold in a petty hamlet or a jungle, nor is gold tested without a touchstone. <clears throat> the Sindhuvara shrubs that bear a quality quantity of blossoms like to rice pudding. My favourites are they, and also the multitude of fair jasmine blooms like to strained buffalo milk. Attendant. <laughs> Your words are as paltry as you are. Jester. Well then, Miss Noble Words, you give a recital. Queen. Friend attendant, you're rather puffed up with pride before us on account of your strong poetic ability. So then, do you recite now before my lord the king a bit of poetry of your own making? For that is true poetry which will bear recital in the assemblies. That is pure gold which proves clear on the touchstone. She is a true wife who gladdens her husband. He is a true son who makes his family illustrious. Attendant. As the queen commands. <clears throat> the wind that had almost died on the flanks of the mountain of Lanka, that had grown weak from filling wide expanded hood after hood of the serpents, wearied with dalliance. At this season, they as the Malabar winds mingling with the sighs of maids whose lovers have left them, have become suddenly and though in their childhood strong. Filled, as it were, with freshness. King. Truly, the attendant is clever by reason of her skill in expression and her variety of diction. And so she stands 
What else? As a crest jewel of poets. Jester. Then why don't you say it straight out? The attendants tip-top at poetry, and I, a Brahmin, at the very bottom. Attendant. My good man, don't get excited. It's your poem that betrays your poetic ability. For your words, fine enough in themselves, although spent on a matter blamable for paltriness, like a string of poles and a flabby-breasted old hag, like a, like a trig bodice on a pot-bellied creature, like the coal pencil on the one-eyed woman, are not over and above charming. Jester. With you, on the contrary, although your matter was charming, it wasn't pretty the way you strung the words together, like a, a row of copper bells on a golden girdle, like trimmings of, of coarse silk on fine silken fabric, like sandal ointment on a girl of loveliest tint. Your language doesn't partake of the elegance of your ideas, but in spite of all of that, you get praised. Attendant. My good man, don't get excited. There's no rivaling you. For you, though unlettered as the iron beam of a goldsmith's balance, are employed as part of a still finer balance for weighing jewels, while I, though lettered like a common balance, am not employed in the weighing of gold. Jester. If you ridicule me in that way, I'll tear off that part of you that goes by the name of Yudhisthira's elder brother, the left one, and the right one too, in a hurry. These are the ears. Attendant. And I'll break that part of you that goes by the name of asterism for the latter falgony in a hurry. That's the, the hand. King. Man, don't talk that way. She has some standing in the line of poetry. Jester. Then why don't you say it straight out? Our little hussy's a first-rate poet. Ahead of even uh, Harry Vidra, Nandi Vidra, Potisha, Hala and the rest. Prance of stage. The attendant. You take yourself off to where my first swaddling clothes went. Jester. And you to where my father mother's first set of teeth went. Here's luck to such a royal court as this, where a hussy appears to be set on par with a Brahmin, where strong drink and the five products of the sacred cow are put in one and the same dish, where glass and ruby are employed together on the same purse. Attendant. In this royal court, may you have that put on your neck, which the exalted triple-eyed triple god Shiva wears on his head. And may your head be well bruised by that, by which the longings of the Ashoka tree are satisfied. This is a, a pretty subtle insult. Let's not bother decoding it. Jester. Ha! You slave girl's child. You terror of gambling halls. You wholesale polluter of young men. You streetwalker. That's the way you talk to me, is it? Well then, as sure as I'm a great Brahmin, you shall get that by which, about February or March, the longings of the horseradish tree are satisfied, and that which a strong but lazy bull gets from the outcasts. Attendant. While I, if you go rattling on that way, like the, the jingling bangles on my feet, with my foot I'll smash your face. And what's more, I'll tear off from you the pair of parts, your ears, that go by the name of the astrum that follows Latra Adasha and chuck him away. Jester. Commend me to such a royal court as this, when it's a devil of a way off. A court where a slave girl sets up a rivalry with a Brahmin. Well, from this day on, I propose, obediently paying my humble duty to my worshipful spouse, to just stay at home. Queen. What sort of fun can we have without our worthy jester? 
How adorn our eyes beautifully without coal. Jester. Oh no, you won't get me to come back, not by a long shot. Better look out for someone else to be your old man. Or perhaps you might put this mean little wench in my place, after giving her a mask with a long beard and awful ears. I'm the only one among you that's dead and done for. But you, here's life to you for a hundred years. What else can you want? Great insults, bad poetry, and a nice helping of insight into a social world. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you have been enjoying the podcasts, please consider donating to my wife's charity, the Snailhill Situ Patrick Memorial Fund. There are details for that on the website. There's a link to the website in the description of the podcast. Until next time, have a great week. Take care.